Dictionary.com defines religion like this. A set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe, especially when considered as the creation of a superhuman agency or agencies, usually involving devotional and ritual observances and often containing a moral code governing the conduct of human affairs. The world of religion that Jesus interacted with in his day was Orthodox Judaism. He was born into a Jewish family, a Jewish nation, a Jewish culture, and he was by his own claims the promised Messiah of Jewish lineage. Early in his public ministry, Jesus has a conversation with a man who embodied the Jewish religion, one who was steeped in the knowledge and understanding of this ancient religion. His name was Nicodemus. And it's a remarkable conversation, one that really goes to the heart of religion. Uh, religion, above all else, is seeking a relationship with God, however you define your God. Having watched one of his favorite afternoon TV shows, the five-year-old said to his mother and posed this question to her, if Batman is so smart... How come he wears his underwear over his clothes? <laughs> now, the question that begs asking as we look at this man Nicodemus today is this. If this man is so smart, if he's so religious, how come he can't understand what Jesus is saying? So go in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 3. If you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1129. John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel, this is where we will be in all of our messages on the conversations with Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 1 tells us in the text about this man, about his identity. By the way, apart from this Gospel, his name appears nowhere else in your New Testament. But we see three things right away about this man that form a very interesting profile. Look at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And then just jot, drop down to verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. So look what we see about this man. First of all, he's a Pharisee. He's a strict observer of the scribal law. He's a strict ritualist whose life is made up of fastings and washings and legal observances and sacrifices and attendance in synagogue. This group of people, the Pharisees, were viewed as the most religious of people in this nation, in that culture. The Pharisees was a brotherhood of religious devotees. There were never more than 6,000 of them at any one time in Israel. In fact, it's said that there was a sect within the Pharisees called the bleeding Pharisees. These were the super religious people. Because if they were walking down the street and they saw a woman coming the other way, they wouldn't even look at her. They raised their eyes to heaven. They kept running into buildings and were called bleeding Pharisees. Many within this group would become Jesus' most fierce opponents and, and, and antagonists, the Pharisee. 
He also was a ruler of the Jews. That is, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, this is a court of 70 men who were, in essence, the supreme court of Israel. It was the most authoritative body of the Jewish people in Christ's time. So its members were well-born, they were well-educated, they were righteous, they were learned, they were zealous for the law. They were the leaders in religion. And then the last thing we notice in verse 10 is he's called the teacher of Israel. He may well have been the most distinguished, most popular expounder of law in his generation. So what we have in Nicodemus is the embodiment of everything that you could imagine necessary to be acceptable to God. He was Mr. Spiritual, Mr. Religious. If a poll had been taken of the ten most influential men in Jerusalem, no doubt he would have been up near the top, if not at the top of that list. If any man could claim that he had arrived, it would be this one. If anyone could say they were acceptable to God because of their sincerity, because of their religious nature and their practices, it would be this fellow right here. So Jesus is coming up against the best that religion has to offer. And so he comes to Jesus by night. Now we have to wonder, why does he come at night? There's probably a couple of possibilities. One is out of fear. That there's fear of being seen. There's a fear of potentially damaging conclusions and assumptions that might be made about him going to this miracle worker who was a bit controversial. Second, it might have been out of necessity. It would provide the only time for these two men to be able to sit down face to face and have a conversation. I mean, they're both busy with their respective responsibilities and activities. This might have been the only time that would afford them the privacy that Nicodemus wanted to have this conversation. And so Nicodemus initiates the conversation with a courteous, some would even say flattering comment. Look at verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do those signs that you do unless God is with him. So he hails Jesus as a teacher from God. And so in a sense, Nicodemus is coming to Jesus as one teacher to teacher to talk about these things that are being said by him. Now it's apparent that he's not speaking only for himself. He says, teacher, we know. So he's really speaking about the collective, the corporate we here. Um, and one more interesting thing, I think, in his opening remark is the relationship that he draws between signs and miracles and the presence of God's power. He's a smart guy. He's savvy. He's knowledgeable. And in response, Jesus gets right to the point, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, you have to be born again. I don't think in his wildest imagination, Nicodemus expected that answer. And, uh, and so Nicodemus responds and he says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Leon Morris, a great commentator on this gospel, suggests that Nicodemus's response here is a case of hurt dignity. And so he writes, there are references to proselytes who entered the Jewish religion as being like children newborn. 
Nicodemus may have felt that the term appropriate to the Gentile as he entered the ranks of the chosen people was the last word that should be applied to one who was not only a Jew, but a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. So not liking the way the conversation is going, he chooses to misunderstand. I guess there are always skeptics out there. There were two people traveling on an airplane and were seated next to each other. And one turned to the other and asked, what do you do? The gentleman replied, I'm a minister. Oh, said the man, I don't believe in that religious stuff. It's for kids, you know. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The minister politely laughed and asked the other man what he did for a living. I'm an astronomer, said the first man. Oh, that stuff, said the minister. I thought it was just for kids. You know, twinkle, twinkle, little star. (laughs) I guess there will always be skeptics out there. Whether a skeptic or not, Nicodemus just didn't see where this conversation was going. So whether intentionally or unintentionally, he kind of tries to throw it off a little bit. Maybe he understands more than he lets on. But he's just unwilling to consider that it had any relevance to him or to his situation spiritually. Have you noticed that people today don't like being told that they're sinners and need a savior? It's an affront to their estimation of themselves. It challenges their belief that they're not accountable to anybody but themselves. It's an insult to what they consider to be their inherent goodness. And it often stands opposite of their religious or spiritual beliefs. Well, the dialogue goes on. Verse 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus throws out there two symbols. One is water, a symbol of cleansing. And the other is the spirit, a symbol of power. And Jesus says, listen, the work of the spirit is not explainable, but it is demonstrable. In other words, you cannot define his work, but you can see the effects of his work. That really is the story of the early church. Read some early church history. The effect of the Spirit's working through the testimony of changed lives. It continued and it grew decade by decade. Justin Martyr, about the middle of the second century, wrote this. There is no people, Greek or barbarian, or of any other race, by whatever appellation or manners they may be distinguished, however ignorant of arts or agriculture, whether they dwell in tents or wander about in covered wagons, among whom prayers and thanksgivings are not offered in the name of the crucified Jesus to the Father and Creator of all things. Half a century later, Tertullian added, we are but of yesterday, and yet we already fill your cities, islands, camps, your palace, senate, and forum We have left you only your temples. These were the effects of the working and the moving of the Spirit. 
Though you cannot define it, you see its effects. And so we have to ask, well, what about our own lives? Do we really understand the work of God in our lives? Can we sufficiently explain the saving and sanctifying work of the Spirit? And yet, we see its effects in us. We see the results. And so we find ourselves with a new perspective. We have a new framework for life. There, there, there is that inner tranquility, a, a sense of well-being regardless of our circumstances. Because God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed His child. And so our attitudes begin to change. Our actions change. Again, how do we explain it? I don't know. But we do see its effects. We see the changes that come because of his work. So the work of the invisible spirit shows its reality through visible effects. If there are no visible effects, if there are no changes in our lives, we really need to question whether we're in the faith. Because God says that happens in us by the Spirit. Nicodemus raises a great question which lies at the foundation of faith. He asks, how can these things be? I mean, by all measurements of the law, I am righteous. I should be like this with God. I'm okay because of how good I am. What else is there? And so Jesus goes on to answer Nick's question here with a story from Hebrew history. It's a story that should have been well known to this great teacher of, of Jewish history and law. Um, so we pick up in verse 10. Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The event that Jesus describes here takes place in the 40th year after Israel's departure from Egypt. It's been 37 and a half years since they failed to enter into the promised land as God had instructed them to do. But they did not because of their disobedience, because of their disbelief. And so there's this lengthy period of time waiting for an entire generation of men over the age of 20 to die off. Let's go back to the story. If you want to keep your finger there in John uh, 3, but let's go back to the book of Numbers, almost to the beginning. If you've got your seat back, Bible page 164, Numbers chapter 21. Let's look at its setting, where it takes place. And what happens? Numbers chapter 21. I'm going to start reading at verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. What are they eating? They're eating manna. In the Hebrew, the word manna simply means, what is it? They didn't know what it was. <laughs> and then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. 
And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This bronze serpent being lifted up was intended to be a figurative representation of the poisonous snakes that were biting the people. But they would be rendered harmless by the mercy of God if they would look upon this snake. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus that in like manner the Son of Man is going to be lifted up and those who look upon him in faith will experience the mercy of God. In this case, those who believe will have eternal life. Life in the kingdom that Jesus spoke about earlier in his conversation with Nicodemus. There's an interesting thing here. The verb to lift up is a word used to describe two experiences of Christ. It's used of his being lifted up on the cross. You see the same word used in two other passages in John's gospel describing Jesus' death. For example, this from uh, chapter 12. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. His first lifting up, lifting up onto the cross. But there's a second one too. It was used of his being lifted up into glory in his ascension into heaven. In Philippians 2.9, Paul writes, Therefore God is highly exalted. Here's our same Greek word, lifted up. He's been lifted up and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So there's a double lifting up in Jesus' life. There's a lifting upon the cross and then lifting into glory. These are inextricably connected Christ, as Savior of the world, was first lifted up or exalted on the cross, and then he's exalted in glory. Before glory comes the cross. Before glory comes the cross. Now, just stick with me, if you would, a little bit. The writer of the book of Hebrews gives us an, an amazing insight about the perspective of Jesus. And so he writes in Hebrews 12 that we're to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, exalted on the cross, exalted in glory, lifted up on the cross, lifted up in glory. Now here's the application for us. Until we meet Christ in the cross, we cannot meet him in glory. The cross has to come first, and then comes glory. May I go a step further? This is also to be our perspective when it comes to suffering. Paul writes in Romans 8, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory 
that is to be revealed to us. First the cross and then glory. Dr. Samuel Palmer Brooks was president of Baylor University from 1902 until his death in 1931. On his deathbed, he wrote a message to the senior class of 1931. And his writing has become immortal for Baylor students. Here's what he wrote. I stand on the border of mortal life, but I face eternal life. I look backward to the years of the past to see all pettiness, all triviality shrink into nothing and disappear. Adverse criticism has no meaning now. Only the worthwhile things, the constructive things that have been built for the good of mankind and the glory of God count now. There is beauty, there is joy, and there is laughter in life, as there ought to be. But remember, my students, not to regard lightly nor to ridicule the sacred things, those worthwhile things. Hold them dear. Cherish them, for they alone will sustain you in the end. And remember, too, that only through work and oft times through hardships may they be attained. But the compensation of blessing and sweetness at the last will glorify every hour of work and every heartache from hardship. You see, suffering must be put in the context of God's sovereignty. Not setting aside his gracious love, but taking it into account with, with, with a focus on the greater glory that's to come. Again, you know, sometimes we're tempted to see that as a cop-out, but if we do not focus on the glory ahead, we don't have a framework to deal with the things that come into our lives here. Because this life will often kick us in the teeth. We'll hit a blow. It's painful. We suffer. But we have a greater glory that's coming. We must always remember that. Now, from time to time in this gospel, we have John's reflections, his meditations. But it's difficult to know where they begin and where they end. In the original language of the Greek New Testament, they didn't use quotation marks. They weren't even so thoughtful to put Jesus' words in red ink. They didn't do that. And so it's most likely in this text in John 3 that Jesus' words end with verse 15. And then beginning with verse 16, the Apostle John is adding his reflections, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but thinking back over to uh, the conversation that Jesus has had with Nicodemus. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, the death on the cross appears to be spoken of in the past, when we come starting at verse 16. And there are stylistic indications that these are John's words. This is the way that he expressed himself. And so as John records these words of Jesus concerning his death, he's led to add some reflections of his own on the subject. And what he has to say might be summarized in three phrases. The love of God, the mission of Christ, and the response of man. As Chris mentioned earlier, we have this most beloved and probably most familiar verse out of the whole Bible that comes in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Think about all that that verse encompasses. It encompasses the initiative of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the unconditional love of God, the compassion of God, the saving power of God, all in that one little verse. Some have divided this verse into parts like this one, God's grace for God so loved the world, God's gift that he gave his only begotten son, God's gospel that whoever believes in him should not perish, God's glory but have eternal life. Someone else has looked at John 3.16 in this way. Because his nature is love, God loved the world. Because God loved, God gave. Because God gave, his son died. Because the son died, God's justice is satisfied. Because God's justice is satisfied, God can forgive. Because God can forgive, man can believe. And because man believed, he can have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Now when we see the mission of Christ, look at verse 17. John writes, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In other words, his mission is one of salvation, not judgment. Oh, judgment is going to come later. In fact, in John chapter 5, John records Jesus as saying that the Father has committed all judgment into his hands. It's just that the purpose of his first coming was to bring salvation. His mission had a destination across outside of Jerusalem where he would bear the sins of the world. But judgment will be the order of the day in his second coming. It's a frightening picture of the day when he will come to execute justice and to punish evildoers. Now John goes on to add a present tense reality to this in verses 18 to 21. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There are two possible responses, John says here, to Jesus and to his word and to his work. One is rejection. And John says that those who do not believe have been judged already. You live under the judgment of God. The day is going to come for the execution of the sentence. But if you're here today and don't know Christ, you're judged already. You, you are living under the condemnation and judgment of a holy and righteous God, whether you know it or not. A politician awoke after an operation, found the curtains in the hospital room drawn. Why are the curtains closed, he asked the nurse. Is it nighttime already? No, the nurse replied. But there's a fire across the street, and we didn't want you to wake up and think the operation was unsuccessful. <laughs> now, we may laugh at that, but there are awful consequences to one that doesn't believe in Christ. His judgment will come. Now, the other thing, the other side of it is acceptance. If you've trusted in Christ, you should not fear God or the future. In his first epistle, John writes that perfect love casts out fear. The Bible teaches very clearly that when you believe in Christ, you pass out of death into life. 
you pass out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Christ. You will never be judged for salvation. I tell you that on the authority of God's word. If you've truly believed in Christ, you're trusting in him for salvation, you will never be judged for your sins. All of your sins were dealt with at the cross. They are all forgiven. Now, there will be a judgment for believers, but it'll be a judgment on what we've done on earth to see whether we receive eternal rewards or not. But you will never come into judgment regarding your eternal destiny. Now, not only does John say that this truth shapes our future destiny, it should also shape our present perspective. So look at verses 19 to 21. John says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, John says that we should not fear coming to God even when we know our lives are not right. Because we still blow it, don't we? We still sin. There's not a person here that's sinless even after we come to Christ. But we have the confidence of our eternal destiny. Our relationship with God is secure. And so even when we know we've been in the wrong, we dare come to the one who is the light. Because he is one that has fully accepted us. And we have the assurance of God's abundant mercy, bountiful forgiveness. But we do what John the Apostle describes and, and, and exhorts us to in his first epistle. He says, if we confess our sins, and that word confess simply means to agree. It means to say the same thing as God does. It, it is to say that the sin that I've committed is sin. It's wrong. Okay? There's no rationalization. There's no spiritualization. There's no trying to, to make something up. I just come face to face with my sin as God points it out. And I say, God, I agree with you. What I did, what I said, what I thought is wrong. And then it says that when we do that, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is written to believers. This is for those of us that are Christians. Does that mean that God waits to forgive me? No, let me suggest this to you. When we confess our sins, we make real in our condition what God already says is true in our position. In other words, there are all these things. I'm totally forgiven of my sins when I come to faith in Christ. But now what I do is I make it real in my experience when I simply agree with God about my sin. I agree that it's wrong, but I also agreed that Jesus went to the cross for that. I also agree with him that that sin is forgiven. And then I ask God to restore the fellowship that's broken when I sin. See, this is the marvelous message of the gospel, that we can have our sins forgiven and have eternal life through Christ. And this is the way we have to deal with religion. Because the best of religion cannot bridge that gap to God. There's no way that any religion can make you acceptable to God. It's only in a relationship that comes because of what Jesus did. Because Jesus did and does what religion cannot do. And that's to restore broken, sinful people to a holy God and to bring us back into a relationship with him. 
That's the great news of the gospel. That has to form our identity as those of us that have placed our trust in Christ. This is the wonderful news for us and the wonderful news that we have for other people around us. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I pray today that your word would, would, it would convict us in one of two ways. If there's someone here that doesn't know Christ today, has never fully trusted in you for their salvation, Lord, would you show them the need that they have to know you, to trust in you, to accept you, to invite you into their life, that you would forgive and give eternal life. And for those of us that do know you, God, may there be this conviction that there's no fear that we have of judgment, that you have totally forgiven our sins, that we are secure in Christ and so we can enjoy the life that you have for us, that you can give us the perspective that having met you at the cross, we will meet you in glory. May these truths, Lord, grip our hearts and our minds that as we live our lives out this week, they would be different. Our perspective would be different. Our attitudes would be different. Lord, we honor and praise you because of what you've done for us, something we could not do for ourselves and are so, so grateful. And so I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.